Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We all know that whether it's a child's toy or a powerful institution, if something is built solid, misuse or the infliction of damage will not always break it. How many times have you dropped your phone and it's been fine? On the other hand, that which is weakened or frayed will unravel with the least amount of stress. In many ways, we can say that about America's foreign policy and military establishment. Weakened over the years by uncertainty, hesitation, partisanship, bad decisions, and an exaggerated admiration for the military that acted like a kind of superglue that held the whole thing together. However, in the hands of a rambunctious child, one with no respect for his property or what he was given, it cannot hold. This is the world of Donald Trump and America's military and foreign policy. Fragile from the start, the spoiled, bratty, impetuous child has finally broken it. And that's the story that my guest Peter Bergen tells in his new book, Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos. Peter Bergen is a vice president at New America in Washington, as well as a national security analyst for CNN, where he writes a weekly online column. He's a professor and co-director of the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University and has held teaching positions at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He's the author of five previous best-selling books, and his latest is Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos. It is my pleasure to welcome Peter Bergen back to this program. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. Well, it's a delight to have you here. One of the things that becomes clear early on in, in reading your book, and, and certainly what we've witnessed over the past three years, is that while Trump surrounded himself with all these generals, which he referred to early on as my generals, he really had such a distorted idea of what the military does, how the military operates. Well, the opening scene in the book is uh, is in the tank at the Pentagon, which is where <clears throat> FDR and George Marshall planned the last couple of years of World War II. And it's regarded as sort of sacred space in the Pentagon. And uh, the reason I opened the book is that it is probably arguably one of the most important meetings of the Trump presidency. Uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, Gary Cohn, the Chief Economic Advisor, and Steve Bannon, the Chief Strategist, all wanted to tell Trump or explain to Trump kind of what the American commitments overseas were. Why do we have 190,000 troops around the world? What are the trade agreements? How does this all, you know, kind of work together? Um, and But there were kind of different agendas for the meeting. Steve Bannon obviously led the America First nationalist wing of the Republican Party. And on the other side, Tillerson and Mattis and Cohen were, you know, in broad agreement that the international order the United States had created after World War II had operated in its benefit. Trump listened to these presentations for uh, some period of time and then just blew up and started using a lot of, you know, four-letter words and saying, we, you know, we're, we're, we don't really have any allies, we're being screwed over, we're, these deficits with China are really mean, mean something, we're, we haven't won any wars, and, you know, basically he started haranguing General Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in this, uh, you know, most important uh, meeting room in the Pentagon. And uh, the meeting was a fiasco, but what it what it showed was that Trump really was going to govern as he had campaigned on an America first nationalist platform. Uh, he really had, doesn't have any time or very little time for NATO. Uh, he uh, <clears throat> was very skeptical about, uh, you know, American military deployments. He really believes that our allies are ripping us off, whether it's the South Koreans or the Germans or, or pick your allies. Uh, and, and that's a view that he's had for, you know, uh, actually for many years, in 87, he took out a full-page out of the New York Times sort of saying that 
the Saudis and the Japanese were ripping us off and they needed to pay down our federal debt. So in, in some, of, some of these ideas, he's been very consistent about. One of the things, though, that, that becomes so clear is that while he holds this view, while he reacted that way in this story that you tell, he really had no idea or no vision for anything else. Well, I think he has instincts, which is out of vision. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, is in, you know, are they? I mean, I, I don't want. I don't mean that in a flip way. I think that, you know, his his instincts were not dissimilar to Obama's. And one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, once you get past the rhetoric, I mean, Obama and Trump have some certain, certain similarities, which is, you know, they didn't get engaged in some big conventional war in the Middle East like, like George W. Bush did. They relied to a large degree on special operations forces, drones, cyber warfare for, uh, and, 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 you know, have kind of followed the same playbook really when it comes to the fight against jihadist terrorists, obviously there are big differences on climate change on China, but, but there are some important similarities and both of them saw themselves as getting elected to get uh, America out of these endless wars. And, and, and suddenly both of them made an effort to do that. Talk a little bit about how the generals reacted to his reaction, how they responded to this this America first attitude. Well, I mean, I think the president's the only elected guy and in, in when the cabinet meets and, and you know, the, the, the cabinet tries to adjust to the president, not the other way around. And that's completely legitimate. So H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, the number two national security advisor, told the National Security Council staff, you know, don't send up 70 page briefing books, you know, 70 page briefing memos, the president's not going to read them, put it on an index card. Think about some suggested tweets that might go with a, with a, with a policy pronouncement. Um, so there was an effort to adjust to him, but I think over time, uh, it's not just that the honor-based military culture is different from say president Trump. It's more about policy. I think policy differences really began to accumulate whether it was Trump's embrace of Putin, who, uh, you know, H.R. McMaster and Jim Mattis, you know, uh, are very clear in their respective uh, strategies that they published to Russia as a peer competitor and not our friend. Uh, the kind of uh, continual um, disrespect uh, that Trump shows to NATO allies, uh, that was something that, you know, officers like McMaster fought side by side with NATO allies in Afghanistan. Jim Mattis also, uh, you know, that the, all these things began to add up over time. One of the points, though, is that even though there was a sense among all the generals that certainly the policy that Trump was putting forth was counter to everything that they had experienced, there were a lot of differences and a lot of backbiting and a lot of battles between some of these generals themselves. Uh, yes. So, you know, H.R. McMaster didn't really get on with the president, who he, the president, uh, you know, he's being lectured or managed, and H.R. McMaster intended to sort of, you know, uh, make five points, which Trump, you know, just tuned out. Um, and then, uh, and then Jim Mattis and, and Rex Tillerson had a very tight relationship, and but which from which they excluded H.R. McMaster, who began referring to them as a club of two. So it was there were certainly tensions within the cabinet uh, about. About this, you know, Jim Mattis would refer to Lieutenant General McMaster, which uh, people in meetings took to mean, you know, I'm a retired four-star general, and this is a you know, serving three-star general, which makes me kind of a you know more exalted figure. So yes, yeah, so we're getting uh, we you know, in the book. I get into all that, and uh, 
John Kelly and Jim Mattis had a very close relationship. Uh, they, Jim Mattis had led the Marine as a, as a, the Marines as a two-star general into Baghdad in 2003. His deputy was John Kelly, who became a one-star general during that invasion of, of Iraq. So they, they had a very tight relationship. Um, and, um, but there was certainly, you know, real tensions between Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster, partly because Jim Mattis, uh, wouldn't produce military options for the president on, on Iran, uh, on North Korea. He tended to slow roll these military options because he was concerned that Trump was sort of impulsive. I think Jim Mattis may have mis mis misread Trump a bit because it turns out that when it comes to the use of military power, Trump is not that impulsive. Uh, he you know, wants to draw down from Afghanistan, wants to draw down from Syria. He uh, called back a military operations against Iran at the last minute. Um, and, and generally, he seems to be you know, not, not that trigger happy. Explain that. Explain what your reporting told you about that. The fact that the rhetoric, the Trump rhetoric, seems to be very different than the reality with respect to the use of military force. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he's a, he's, Trump is often, you know, a, a, you know, he's a bloviating bully on occasion, and but but it is. I think that some of our enemies have kind of taken his measure. So the Iranians are starting to enrich uranium past the agreed level of the 2015 nuclear agreement. The North Koreans are testing uh, smaller range ballistic missiles. They promised Trump some kind of Christmas present, which I'm sure won't be a box of chocolates. Uh, the Russians continue with their information operations against the West. I mean, so. I, I think uh, you know he 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 is more reluctant to use military power than his rhetoric would suggest, and I think our allies and our enemies have adjusted accordingly. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the the attitudes in the Pentagon below some of these generals. The degree to which some of this has filtered down and affected people inside the military establishment and the State Department, for that matter. Well, I mean, obviously the State Department, you know, it might be a kind of little bit of a different animal than Pentagon in the sense that uh, something like a thousand uh, State Department employees and diplomats signed a dissent cable early in the Trump administration decrying the travel ban as basically being kind of counterproductive and unnecessary. Uh, the, the Pentagon doesn't operate like that. I mean, the Trump is the commander in chief. I, you know, the, there's little discussion of politics inside the inside the Pentagon, um, and and I think that you know whoever the president is, there's there's an effort to just kind of put your head down and, and and keep working for the commander in chief. That said, I think Trump's pardons of these three convicted uh, special operators who are convicted of various kinds of war crimes. I think that uh, has you know I, 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 the military veterans that I've spoken to. Don't approve of that because it's uh, the, the commander in chief shouldn't be intervening in you know in these in these cases. Um, but I think as a general proposition, you know, it, it, the, the Pentagon is prides itself on being apolitical, uh, and, and 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 I think it, it largely is. One of the things you point out is the role that Jack Keane played as 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 a military analyst on Fox who really has become yeah. part of, of, of Trump's cabinet, essentially. Yeah, Jack Keane is a really interesting, um, you know, four-star retired Army general who grew up in the Manhattan Projects and kind of is able to connect with uh, Trump. 
Uh, Trump has offered him the post of Secretary of Defense not once, but twice. Twice he's turned it down, but basically for personal reasons. Um, but he continues to function as sort of a shadow national security advisor to Trump, A, through appearances on Fox News, where, you know, obviously Trump is paying careful attention, and B, you know, occasionally in the Oval Office. So when Trump announced a unilateral withdrawal from Syria in December of 2018, uh, which precipitated Jim Mattis's resignation, Jack Keane later spoke with Trump in person and pointed out, look, we just completely leave Syria, you're leaving oil fields to Iran and to ISIS, potentially. And uh, th you know, that argument was persuasive on the president. So Jack Keane certainly intervened to, uh, and, and the president, president will listen to Jack Keane, either on TV or in person. What damage has all of this done? Well, that is, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. We, it's a pretty resilient uh, institution. The, the, I mean, let, well, you know, I think the, the, that that's a, that's an open question. I mean, you know, one one of the interesting things that I have come to conclude, and not not so much right in, that I put in the book, but just after after having written it, you know, the British have a unwritten constitution, the Americans have a written constitution, but in fact, it turns out the United States has an unwritten constitution that we weren't really aware of. Which and part of that is the president won't attack his own law enforcement agencies, his own intelligence agencies. He won't, you know, to denigrate the media as the enemy of the people. I mean, there is a whole sort of set of things that typically presidents don't do, and Trump has, Trump has sort of blown past these these kinds of norms. Uh, you know, what effect that will have, I, I, it's hard for me to to really judge right now. I, I think that um, you know, we've, republic's been around for almost two and a half centuries. Uh, we've survived really uh, much worse crises, um, whether it was the, con you know, the kind of the deep, uh, the deep wounds of the, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and, the, you know, the kind of the assassinations of the 60s. I mean, it, it, I think it's for everybody who says, you know, this is a particularly contentious, polarized time. Um, you know, I think if we look back at our history, whether it was the Civil War or the 70s, I mean, I think we've had more contentious, more polarizing times, and somehow we managed to survive. Is it surprising to you that none of these generals that you write about, that we've talked about, that were allegedly providing guardrails for Trump, that no single one of them has emerged to be the leader of, of the effort to contain all of this, to try and put it all in some kind of perspective, to control Trump? None of them seem to have risen to that occasion. Well, but I, and I think there's a good reason for that, which is, you know, I mean, Jim Mattis obviously came out with his memoir and interviewers asked, you know, pressed him on this issue and he just wouldn't go down that path of criticizing a sitting president. In his memoir, he just, he was quite critical of President Obama and Joe Biden for their, in his view, precipitous withdrawal from Iraq at the end of 2011. But, you know, H.R. McMaster won't go down the path of criticizing a sitting president, I don't think. John Kelly has made, you know, some public observations uh, but yeah, they don't, I mean, for them, they take seriously the non-political role of the military, but there's a certain paradox, which is, of course, if you are, you know, get a senior job in the, in the Trump administration by, by, by its very nature, these jobs are political. So, um, it's an interesting question about the nature of the proper relationship between the military and the civilian, uh, uh, government, um, but certainly they've taken the position, and I think will continue to take the position, that they will not be critiquing a sitting president. Now, other 
senior military officers, as I lay out in the book, General McChrystal, Admiral McRaven, the architect of the Bin Laden operation, have certainly been publicly critical of the president. Not 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 continuously, but you know, at certain, at certain moments of their choosing. Uh, and uh, so it's not that it's not that some of the senior military officers haven't been critical. You talk about McChrystal as having been an early choice of Trump's for uh, Secretary of Defense, but McChrystal wouldn't do it. He wouldn't, and he would, the reason he wouldn't do it is he considered Trump to be, you know, dishonest and, and ignorant, uh, and that was a conclusion he derived at in November of 2016 when they he got a call from Trump Tower and they were seriously considering him for Secretary of Defense. Uh, McChrystal's views haven't changed, and he's been publicly critical uh, of the president on occasion, uh, and so. Yeah, there were some military officers who didn't, you know, who 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 just you know, Trump is, is is anathema to them. Talk a little bit about the role of Tillerson, who's an important character, although not one of the generals, an important character in in your book. Yeah, well, of course, Rex Tillerson, you know, ran one of the most successful companies and largest companies in the world. He uh, running Exxon is very different from running the State Department. At, at Exxon, there is something called the God Pod, which is where the you know the CEO of Exxon would sort of issue orders, and they would be executed by Exxon employees around the world. Uh, State Department is a little bit different, and I mean, I think that he was uh, not very successful Secretary of State. He didn't really defend the, part, the department from draconian cuts that were wanted by the Trump administration. He tended to only focus on one issue at once, and that's not really the way the ineffective Secretary of State operates. He did have uh, reasonable instincts about certain key issues. For instance, he was opposed to the blockade of Qatar uh, by the Saudis, which Trump enthusiastically embraced in the in June of 2017. Uh, I mean, it, this made no sense to Madison to Tillerson because Qatar, in fact, you know, is... Um, uh, in many ways, a close ally of the United States with a very important U.S. military base, uh, the forward operating base for Central Command, from which the wars against ISIS and Taliban were being co- were being coordinated. Uh, it's also you know, Georgetown, uh, Carnegie Mellon, Northwestern all have satellite campuses there. Um, this this blockade really made no sense. And Tillerson had, in fact, spent a considerable amount of time. Uh, working in Qatar, uh, Qatar has one of those, has Qatar and Iran share the world's largest natural gas oil field, and he was Tillerson was intimately involved in that. So, you know, he 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 certainly uh, on issues that he he knew something about, he he, he would push back. Uh, but you know, he he and Trump, you know, quickly kind of went their separate ways. Uh, Tillerson's a deeply religious man. He uh, he well, you know he. He thought that his role was sort of to, to contain Trump. That was the role that, uh, that God had assigned him. And, of course, eventually he was uh, unceremoniously essentially fired by a tweet um, by Trump. What do you think that American allies who read your book, who read Trump and his generals, what are they going to come away with? What understanding will they come away with, do you think? Well, I mean, I think they'll come away with the idea that you know Trump sees everything in sort of bilateral transactional terms you know he he actually subscribes to a i think to a kind of social darwinian view of life uh that that was prevalent in the late 19th century which is that you know survival the fittest there's always a winner there's always a loser um you know as our theorizing about evolution has uh 
evolved. You know, we we now think that it, we really, uh, you know, human human activity can be explained by reciprocal altruism rather than survival of the fittest. Reciprocal altruism meaning is a fancy way of saying, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or at some point in the future, I'll scratch yours, and that and that, you know. So, but Trump doesn't doesn't for him every transaction must involve a winner and a loser. And he wants to be the winner, and he doesn't believe in these alliances like NATO. He thinks they're ripping us off, and you know, he's been very consistent about about this. And I mean, there's a great scene in the book where uh, Angela Merkel's on her first visit to the White House, and uh, which is in April of 2017, and he presents her an invoice that his staff have made up that claiming that the Germans owe the United States 600 billion dollars for for their lack of spending on their own defense. And I mean, and, and she says, but this is not the way that this thing works. And NATO doesn't work. It's not, it's not like the United States is owed money by other countries in NATO. Um, they, there's just an agreement that every NATO country will spend up to 2% of their GDP on defense spending by 2024, which is very different than, you know, owing the United States $600 billion. But this is the way he sees the world. And, you know, is this because of willful misunderstanding? Is this because he really believes this? I, I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a, he, 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 he treated the Germans like he was a landlord and they were late on their rent. Uh, when in fact, of course, you know, that, that, that wasn't the case. And, and, and one thing about NATO that he never emphasizes is hundreds, many hundreds of NATO soldiers who died in Afghanistan fighting in, in, in a war that after all was precipitated by an attack by Al Qaeda on his own hometown. Um, and I've never heard him say anything about those sacrifices. It's all about, you know, you owe us money and I, I want to collect and start paying checks. Given where we are now, given how all these generals have faded away within the Trump administration, how do you think that it impacts policy now, particularly with respect to Iran and North Korea? Well, I think that you have a less impressive group around the president. I mean, and, and they're more inclined to just go along for the ride. The reason H.R. McMaster and Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and John Kelly no longer uh, are in his orbit, or in one way or another, they would challenge him, argue with him, uh, produce other options. Uh, I think the group that he has now, and then by the way, I also include John Bolton, who's now gone as well. I mean, he, 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 he was also prepared to you know, challenge the president. But the group we have now is a group of yes men and some yes women and, and family members. And he's running the White House like he ran his real estate company as a one-man show with a, sort of a supporting cast of, of acolytes. And, you know, that, uh, you know, he's entitled to run it however he wants. The question is, if there's a major crisis, uh, how, how will he react? What kind of advice will he get? Uh, how useful will it be? And how does that impact somebody like Dunford? Well, Dunford actually just—he's recently—he's um, recently retired, um, and he's been replaced by General Milley. One of the reasons that Jim Mattis broke with Trump is that Jim Mattis wanted uh, his own pick as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to succeed Dunford, and Trump kind of ignored that. But Dunford, I think, will—you know—he's going to keep his silence. I don't think he's—I—I I, I think that I'm sure he has his own views about about all this. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was the commander of the Afghan War, uh, and uh, he, you know, has had a distinguished career. And um, but he, I, I think it, I, I don't anticipate hearing anything from him about his his service under Trump. 
Do you think that, that the military will change after this, even after Trump is gone, that the impacts of this will have some lasting effects as far as the Pentagon is concerned? Uh, well, it's an interesting question. One, one thing that Trump has done, which the, the military is happy about, is dramatically increase its budget. I mean, the budget for the Pentagon during the Obama years averaged about $600 billion. I think Congress just approved a $738 billion package. So there have been significant changes in that sense, and, and, and there's more investment in kind of the effort to kind of um, engage in great power competition with the Chinese or the Russians. So those, those are substantive changes uh, that I think will, will carry on uh, uh, past Trump. Uh, but on the on the question of, you know, has he damaged the institution? I, I, I'm not sure. I think these institutions are, are more robust than just one president. And finally, has Trump learned anything from this? I think he's a lot more comfortable in his own judgments. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of something that he got completely right, which was the decision to greenlight the operation against Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS in October. You know, there was some risk there because the the special operations forces that had to, to did, that did the raid had to transit you know, much of Syria and a lot of Russian controlled airspace. Uh, but it went, you know, went fairly flawlessly. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Trump as commander in chief deserves credit for that decision. Peter Bergen, his book is Trump and his generals, the cost of chaos. Peter, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you.